Good morning. This is the Clark County Board of Equalization hearing for February 5th, 2024. The county clerk has informed us that this meeting has been posted and properly noticed. At this time, may we please call the roll. Terry Farr. Present. Luke Adamo. Paul Chaffee. Tio Federico. Present. Petra Latch. Present. It's Petra for future reference. Uh, at this time, I motion to adopt the agenda. Please cast your votes. That motion passes. Before we start, microphone is open for any public comment. Seeing none, I will close the microphone. This time we need to swear in the petitioners. Anyone who intends to testify on behalf of the petitioners and members of the assessor's office, please stand and face the county clerk to be sworn in. Do you solemnly swear that the testimony you are about to give during the course of this hearing is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Thank you. Now we have a statement from the district attorney's office on what the Board of Equalization is allowed and not allowed to do. The County Board of Equalization may determine the value of any property the county assessor assesses and may change and correct any valuation found to be incorrect to make it conform to the taxable value of the property. Any taxpayer who claims overvaluation of its real or secured personal property by reason of undervaluation or non-assessment of another taxpayer's property within any county of the state may appeal to the County Board of Equalization in a county where the property is located concerning the assessed value and present evidence. If the County Board of Equalization finds merit in the complaint, it shall increase the value of the property complained of to conform to its taxable value. A taxpayer who believes that his or her property was assessed at a higher value than another property, identical in use and comparable in location, may appeal the assessment to the County Board of Equalization. If the board finds that an inequity exists in the assessment of the value of the land or improvements or both, the board may add to or deduct from the value of the appellant's land or improvements or both, or to the property to which it is compared to equalize the assessment. A taxpayer who believes that the full cash value of his or her property is less than its taxable value computed for the current assessment year may appeal to the County Board of Equalization. If the board agrees, it may correct the land value or fix a percentage of obsolescence to be deducted from the taxable value of improvements or both to equalize the taxable and full cash value. A public officer cannot act on a matter that would reasonably be affected by the public officer's commitment in a private capacity without disclosing information in public to the chair and other members of this body. In addition, a public officer shall not vote upon or advocate the passage or failure of a matter with respect to which the independence of judgment of a reasonable person in the public officer's situation would be materially affected by the officer's acceptance of a gift or loan the officer's significant pecuniary interest or the officer's commitment in a private capacity to the interests of another person. Thank you. 
Now we have some discussion of possible action on 23-24 and 24-25, assessor recommendations. Chairman Farr, you'll find the attachment for those recommendations starting on page seven of the master book. Motion to accept the assessor's recommendations on page seven. Please cast your votes. That motion passes. Minutes from the February 6th, 14th, 23rd, 27th, 2023 Board of Equalization hearings. Chairman Farr, you'll find the minutes beginning on page 17 of the master book. I motion to approve the minutes for February 6th, 14, 23, and 27 of 2023. Please cast your votes. Motion passes. Notices of appearance. Yes, Chairman Farr, um, if you, page 2010, which is case 1392, we're going to begin with that case. And briefly, I just wanna review the reasons for the notices of appearance. So um, we, we have notice of appearance for a few different reasons. Um, it could be an untimely filing um, where the petitioner did not file um, within the proper deadline. It can be that the petitioner did not have the proper letter of authorization if it was an agent who had filed. Um, or it could be that someone is trying to file for a back year and it is not a current year appeal. So the time frame for doing that would be um, would have been last year this time. So briefly, I just want to reference the statutes that govern this. And if you turn to page 2899, just to kind of have a brief overview, you'll see NRS 361.340. And without reading the whole entire uh, statute to you, the, it's in highlight, the part that's the most important right now. And it says every appeal to the County Board of Equalization must be filed, <coughs> excuse me, no later than January 15th. If January 15th falls on a Saturday, Sunday, or a legal holiday, the appeal may be filed on the next business day. It was a holiday on Monday this year, and so January 16th actually was the deadline for filing an appeal. Um, and we do accept those appeals um, if they've been postmarked. It's further in the statute that says that it must be postmarked by that date. Or if they email them to us, if they get them to us by 11.59 p.m. by email, we will accept those as well. Um, but once we tick into the next day, then it's considered an untimely filing. <coughs> Pardon me. So if we go back to case 1392, which again begins on page 2893, and you go to page 2894, you will see that we have the appeal form. And then 
2896, you can see the email that we received, and we received it Wednesday, January 17th at 9.54 a.m., um, which is when they submitted their appeal form, which is beyond the deadline. So based on this information, we're recommending that the board does not take jurisdiction on this appeal. I would make a motion that we deny the appellant based on the information provided and the fact they didn't show up. Motion's been made. Please cast your votes. Motion passes. Chairman Farr, the next uh, three cases, 1428, 1429, and 1430, are all a similar situation. Again, an untimely filing. Um, I am handing out an addendum to you. Um, it was an additional email that was sent to me um, after I reached out to speak to this gentleman. Um, if you turn to page, um, the, the cases actually begin on 2231. Um, but if you turn to page 2917, you will see the email that we received um, from uh, Mr. Z. And it's dated January 17th at 7.31 p.m. And in that email, he said he had attempted to email this multiple times the day before, but it kept bouncing back. Um, he said he rescanned it at a lower resolution in hope that it would go through this time. And so he, I did receive it on the 17th. So I reached out to him, and that is the addendum that I sent to you, and sent him an additional email um, saying, if you can provide evidence to me that this bounced back um, and that you had attempted to send it with an appropriate email um, showing me that you had tried to send it, then I, we would accept that. Um, what I received was, if you'll look at page four of the addendum, um, you can see there's a, it lo what looks to be an email, but all this is is a draft of another email that he created um, that makes it look like he was sending me an email, but there's no date or anything on it that says that he actually sent it to me. And you can see that I followed up um, on that email on page one that said, as per our conversation, um, we, uh, you need to provide evidence that the email was sent on January 16th and that it bounced back. Um, and unfortunately, the screenshot that he had provided was not sufficient to prove that. And so I just wanted to have that information available to you. So based on this, uh, we're recommending that you do not accept jurisdiction. Um, it's the same for 1428, 1429, and 1430. Based on the evidence provided, um, we recommend that we do not um, have jurisdiction on these cases. Motion's been made, please cast your votes. And that motion passes. Chairman, the next case is 1363. <clears throat> Uh, you will find that beginning on page 2866. 
And in this situation, this is a little bit different. This is a, if, it's important that we look at the appeal form. So if you look at page 2869, you can see there's the appeal form. And then the second page of it is following. And you can see that it was signed by an Iman DeLay, who's saying he's the authorized agent, uh, but he is signing in the agent, in the, in the owner section, not the agent section. Um, we did, he, he did send us a revised form um, where he then, uh, we added some actually additional information to add his email address that we've submitted in the record. And then that's followed by another form that he sent to us um, with the date now 116. So he did file timely with regards to that. And even though he signed in the wrong section, we would have gone ahead and accepted this, except for the fact that he did not follow it with a letter of authorization. And so we sent out our typical letters um, to let them know if there's an issue. And we, as you'll find that, uh, the email on page 2876 to let him know that um, the deadline for filing a proper agent authorization would have been January 18th. And I will reference the statute here in just a moment about that. And then the letter that also says the same, that says the appeal was submitted without the required written authorization and pursuant to NRS 361362, a person file an appeal on behalf of an owner um, shall provide written authorization from the owner that authorizes that person to file an appeal for an assessment that was made. Um, and it must be done within 48 hours, I'm paraphrasing, but that's what the letter basically says. Um, the statute um, that backs that all up is um, NRS 361.362, which you will find on page 2879, appeal on behalf of a property owner, and you'll see it's highlighted there. Um, section two, if a person files the appeal in a timely manner without the written authorization required by subsection one, the person may provide that written authorization within 48 hours after the last day allowed for filing the appeal. The deadline for that this year would have been January 18th, and we did not receive any letter of authorization from this person. So based on this, we're recommending that you do not take jurisdiction. Based on the information provided and testimony contained herein, I uh, recommend that we deny jurisdiction on case 1363. Please cast your vote. That motion passes. All right, Chairman. Um, the next case is 679. This one's a little different um, than the others. Uh, the, the appeal was filed on time. Um, it was filed with, the, uh, with an authorization. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, I should tell you where this is found. This is found on page 2240. Uh, You'll find the appeal form. And you will find the authorization on 2242. And 20, it, it continues to go on. So the, the authorization for Circle K is valid. The, the problem is, is the, what the statutes say with regards to filing an appeal. And so I'm going to get to that statute here. Just a moment. Give me just a moment. 
Forgive me, I thought it was highlighted and that's why I was having trouble finding it. It's on page 2255, it's NRS 361.334. And for the purposes of filing an appeal, um, the owner does not necessarily have to be the owner of record. Um, it can be so, uh, someone who controls or uh, possesses the property in its entirety. And you'll see that in section one, it says the term owner includes a person who owns or controls taxable property or possesses it in its entirety um, for the taxable, the entirety of the taxable property. And so what I've given to you is um, a handout with an aerial um, of the property. And if you take a look at that, you'll see that it's surrounded in um, like a pink outline. And up in the upper right-hand corner of that section that's surrounded, you can see there's a circle K up there on the corner, but then there's some retail there to the left corner. And so for this, for Circle K to have been able to file an appeal on this, they would have had to get authorization from the owner of the property. Um, and the person that filed only got the authorization from Circle K, so they did not have the authority because they have to possess it in its entirety. And I will tell you that um, this particular statute was, um, I was with the legislature and testified before the legislature on this particular thing because we do have um, kiosk in malls. So it would have permitted a, somebody in a kiosk and mall to file an appeal on a whole mall or an Ashley furniture maybe that occupies the end of a strip center that doesn't really possess it in its entirety to file on behalf of the whole strip center. They can do that if they get permission from the owner. But in this case, we didn't have permission from the owner for them to do that. And so that's why this particular one, um, we're recommending that you um, do not take jurisdiction. Um, based on the evidence provided, I recommend we do not take jurisdiction on case 679. Please cast your votes. <clears throat> Motion passes. Chairman Farr, that would be the end of all the notices of appearance, so you may move on in your agenda to... Um, there are procedural rules. Thank you. This hearing is recorded and a part of the public record. It is difficult to tra transcribe the hearings with concurrent multiple voices. Please do not speak if another party has the floor. If you have the floor, please speak clearly into the microphone. Please note we do not discuss property taxes in these hearings. Your net property taxes may not be affected by the outcome of your case. Procedural rules relative to presenting appeals are as follows. When we call your name, please, or I'm sorry, when we call your case, please come up to the podium and state your name and address into the microphone for the record. The assessor will briefly describe the property to the board. You will then present evidence for your case. The assessor staff will provide their evidence to support the assessor's opinion of the taxable value. You may then respond to the assessor's case, but you are limited to the rebuttal of evidence presented by the assessor. Please keep comments limited specifically to your case. Please do not address the assessor staff. The board will ask questions of the petitioner or the assessor staff. The board will discuss the testimony and information provided and move forward with the decision. If you were unhappy with the board's decision, you have the right to appeal with the State Board of Equalization. The assessor's office also has that right to appeal our decision. Appeal forms are located in the hallway outside the doors to the chamber. Do we have any administrative business? Yes, Chairman Farr, we have a few extra withdrawals here that we received this morning. So beginning on page two, uh, 536 has been withdrawn. And then on page three, 
Case 302, Case 934, 935, 936, and 1436 have also all been withdrawn. In addition to that, I would just like to um, state that the hearing that is going to be for this coming Thursday is, it's different. We normally have them at eight o'clock in the morning, but it will be beginning at 1 p.m. in the afternoon. I just wanna emphasize that we did have a, a little glitch in our noticing and we our initial notice went out at eight, uh, saying eight o'clock in the morning, but we re-noticed all the petitioners. The agenda is showing one o'clock and all the petitioners have been reached by phone. Um, some of them we had to just leave messages for, but I did want to let the board know that we had a little bit of an issue with that. Um, but it is at 1 p.m. Uh, for this coming Thursday. And for that date, we have 62 cases that are left. Uh, for Monday, February 12th, there are 32. For Wednesday, February 14th, there are 114. February 15th, 97. February 22nd, 98. February 26th, 132. And for the 28th, we have 40. So the total is the 575 remaining cases of the 1,100 some odd that were filed this year. Great, thank you. Uh, call case 180, Clevenar P1 LLC. Do we have anyone here from Clevenar? Okay, can you please step up to the microphone? State your name and address for the record, please. My name is Joshua T. Schiller. The address is 400 West 4th Street, uh, Suite 350, Royal Oak, Michigan, 48067. Thank you. Mr. Brown. Good morning. I'm Nick Brown with the Clark County Assessor's Office. Case 180 starts on page 1160 of the master book. The subject property is a four-story Class A office building known as Narrative. It's located at 6795 Agilisus Way along the South 215 near Durango Drive between Uncommon and the Credit One Bank Campus and is situated on a 3.64 acre parcel. The total square footage of the office building is 102,367 square feet. Uh, it was built last year, but several of the suites are still currently being finished out. It's currently 85% complete in our records. There is also a 69,548 square foot, two-story detached parking garage which we have on our record as 100% complete. Uh, the assessor's office recommends upholding the 24-25 taxable value of 
before you begin, sir, um, I'm going to make it known. I've, I've provided a bid to appraise this property, but I have not been given any financials. I have not been given anything about um, any other information about the property other than what I already knew. Um, I consider myself to be unbiased, and, and we will continue, especially since it, we only have a, a minimum quorum here today. But please go ahead and continue with your case. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I did have a revision of the documentary evidence. I have some additional documents to provide. Okay. Okay, I'd like to just touch on the basis as to why I'm providing some additional documentary evidence. Um, I believe a lot of it is very similar to what I provided initially, but after having a lot more discussions um, with Mr. Brown from the county, as well as from the Collier's brokers who are listing the property, as well as other various sources, I just felt it was appropriate to adjust the numbers as some of my initial numbers, I think, um, provided rents that perhaps were maybe a little bit too low for the subject property, for the narrative, um, and some other numbers that I just was able to gather a little bit more additional information on. Uh, so this package here, just to give you a kind of an orientation as to what I'm providing, um, the first, after the cover page, which summarizes where I got the information, the first, I believe it's four pages, let me count, just to double check. Um, the first four pages, so I numbered the pages in the upper right-hand corner where I put appeal number 180, and then there's numbers, and those are page numbers. So page numbers two, three, four, and five are revisions of what I'd, I'd previously sent as a spreadsheet a format um, just to update the rent roll information that I was provided further by Collier's management as we manage this building. Um, that's on page two. Um, on page three, the market potential income, I updated uh, quite a bit of the information in there, uh, especially based on feedback from Mr. Brown, um, looking at other surrounding, uh, what you could consider comparable properties that were offered for lease. Um, and then also considering a lot of feedback that I got from Mr. Tabor at Phil. He works with Collier's International. He is one of the listing brokers for um, the narrative, our subject property. Uh, he also works in this market. And he was able to provide a lot of insight in terms of what the numbers actually might look like um, for potential market income. And then on page number five, uh, I just updated the actual income with some of the fourth floor information, which at the time I initially submitted this appeal, I didn't have complete numbers for the fourth floor rents. Um, I had some income and expense information from property management, 
um, but on page number five, I updated it to um, what, just to in incorporate what had been provided to me further. Um, and the sales comparables on page number five are the ones that I provided initially, so there was nothing additional there. Um, I just re put them back into page number five just for convenience. Um, and then finally, on the new documents, the exhibits that I list out are really just supporting information where it was available um, from CoStar or LoopNet or other sources just so that you could have it for your own review and to see, to verify for yourself if you needed to. Or um, occasionally, I think sometimes there were some uh, pictures of properties. Uh, that could just, if you wish, you could take a look at those um, as I go through just to kind of uh, get an idea of what um, you know the initial or the backing information was for what I was able to find. So to get into this a little bit, um, this is really presenting market data. I am not really, we didn't do a formal appraisal on this property. I'm not an appraiser myself. Um, and I'm really taking the information that our listing brokers had and provided to me as well as provided to ownership and our property management. Um, and just presenting that because we feel that it does indicate that the um, taxable value exceeds the actual market value of the property. So the first thing that I'd like to point to is that on the rent roll summary, um, there are two second floor tenants, Collier's, um, our Nevada office is here uh, in the narrative building, um, new office build out, and then also Agilisus Inc. is there on the second floor. These are two of the pre-lease tenants. So the rates are a bit lower than some of the later tenants. And the feedback that I got from both the listing broker and management was that as the project got underway, after the pre-leasing was completed, the costs for the project increased um, in a substantial way. Substantial not meaning like double or anything like that, but definitely went up with the, the market as we saw increased costs. So rents that were signed later, especially for the fourth floor and for the second floor, do reflect higher prices per foot. The feedback I got from Mr. Thill, Tabor Thill, our listing broker, was that it looked like the net effect for ownership is likely going to be similar to the initial pre-leased rents. Um, if you consider cost structure. In other words, the pre-lease rents were figured with um, you know, a certain net effect. I don't have the exact numbers for that, but then the later leases were also aimed to get a similar net um, to ownership after considering expenses of construction and so forth. So what we're seeing here is rising rates on the subject property um, that were really primarily a product of the expense of the project. When we get into the next page, page number three, uh, the potential market income, I revised my number as far as the price per foot up to $43 per foot, um, and that was based on consideration of the cost, because when I first submitted this, I wasn't fully aware of the increase of costs for the project as it went on, um, thereby really necessitating getting a little bit higher rents. Uh, but also, I took a closer look at some of the nearby Class A um, offices 
that co-star class is class A and also gave four-star rating just like the uh, narrative on Agilisus here. So those properties would be the Avor building on 6111 South Buffalo Drive. Um, this particular building is, I believe, still currently under construction. They have um, more phases planned in the future. Uh, it's a very good mixed-use development with some offices, uh, multifamily, restaurants. It looks like they have proposed retail. Um, it's an excellent underway and up-and-coming development. Um, and the office component of that has a lot of similarities to our property, and it looks like it's a pretty good lease comp. It does, con you know, we would consider, you know, construction costs have gone up over time. Um, but the Evora on Buffalo did have offered rates of $40.80 per foot, modified gross, that's a, as an annual rate, up to $45.60 a foot. Um, and that seems also based on the performance of our property here. Seem to be quite similar. Amenities are probably very similar. Um, the setting is, is, in some ways, might be considered, I, I guess the feedback from Mr. Thill, our listing broker, is that the Avora, in some ways, might be considered superior to our property, but it's also set back maybe like a quarter mile off the freeway, so there's no frontage. Um, the, the narrative, our property, has freeway frontage. Uh, it's an excellent location, so the signage, I think, makes up for any other um, element that might be considered inferior to the Avora. So in other words, uh, he thought it was pretty much a wash. So I think it provides a good range of potential market prices. And the modified growth seems to be the going lease structure for this area when I look through CoStar and talk to the brokers. Another property that's located next door is another mixed-use development. Um, it has office, a pretty significant office component. Looks like it's fully leased up. They have um, excellent retail and restaurant opportunities there. It's called the Uncommons. It has also a multifamily. The office component is basically kind of on the other side of the multifamily where our property is not part of that development, but um, I think about a block away from, from some of the amenities of the Uncommons. The Uncommons could be considered a superior property in some regards, given that it has well certification, which is a certification um, that basically takes consideration of the development of the property, its layout, its access to the amenities, multifamily. It even considers uh, wellness, such as light that can go through the building, uh, how the finishes are done so that um, you know people have natural light coming into the building regardless of where they are in many places. There are pavilions for conferences um, that I thought were pretty unique that are set within the, the site. Um, and the retail and the restaurants seem to be pretty, um, pretty good and, and pretty high end. And so it's a quite attractive development. Um, there are some pretty big tenants there. CBRE is in there. Um, DraftKings has taken a lot of space in there, did a all new build out. and. Um, but besides some of the elements that were maybe a little superior, it's otherwise a comparable property in terms of the office component. So they had offerings um, in, list in 2021s at $40.80 per foot modified gross, and in 2022 went up to $48.60 modified gross. When I talked to Mr. Thill about this, our listing broker, 
it was his feedback was that um, he felt they probably experienced uh, you know similar cost increases as the project went on um, but he doesn't know that for a fact and that could be my guess as well just given that everybody's faced cost increases as projects have gone on but regardless we're seeing a range of 40 to 48 60 per foot annually maybe a little bit superior so I think still it gives us a pretty good indicated range of where the subject might fall. Finally, there's the axiom on 7160 Rafael Rivera Way. That one is very similar to the subject in terms of amenities that were made available to the initial tenants. Um, some people think aesthetically it's not nearly as pleasing as the subject property, uh, and that was also built earlier, so we could, I think we could safely assume under a lower cost structure. Um, so the leases there did have, uh, what I found was early on they were at sub $40 per foot annually, but um, in more recent times we are talking second generation space, but it looks like they've tracked with the other nearby um, properties, they've gone up to $40.80 to $42 a square foot full service. My guess though is they can probably, this is my opinion, is they can probably offer competitively, maybe by a couple dollars less than nearby buildings because they did have a lower, presumably a lower cost structure when they built the building. Overall, I thought these were the three best comparables and I arrived at a, vo at a value of $43 per foot in terms of um, potential number to use for calculating potential market income for the, the subject property. The rentable building area from the rent roll, I have at 100,185 square feet. Um, and that again is the rentable building. It is, I, I have no disagreement with the county on the gross um, square footage of the property. Um, but that's what's listed as rentable in the rent rolls, considering the common areas. Um, there are some cost reimbursement potential, I think, because the, some of the leases, um, as you'll see in the rent roll, are offered with you know, plus utilities, or they have some expenses that are paid by the tenants. So I put in the dollar per foot to account for that. Um, other income could include parking. I just used a percentage for that. Um, the vacancy allowance I got from our CoStar research office. Uh, they publish data every quarter um, and internally update it um, frequently. So as far as last year, what kind of percentage we're looking at vacancy for even class A space uh, their feedback was 11%. The expenses, I actually looked at other properties I could find on CoStar that had reported financials to kind of extract expenses. And my approach was to leave out property taxes as an expense and just consider the non-property tax expenses for other properties that were gross or modified gross leases. Um, basically, I found a bunch of comps where it looked, I listed the addresses there on page four towards the middle, so the bottom of the uh, writing section. And the ranges were anywhere from 23 to 35% um, of their um, adjusted gross income as reported. And uh, that of course was excluding uh, property tax as an expense and as a reimbursement. The subject property the information I got from the property manager, I extrapolated out that it, it looks like it could operate at a 30% margin. 
um, if we exclude property taxes as an expense. So that did seem to fall in within the range that was provided by the comps as well. So I used the 30% um, expense margin. The cap rate I got from discussions with Mr. Thill, our broker. Um, I did talk to some others trying to, to glean cap rates. And I did go through CoStar and try to pull comps that also would indicate cap rates. In recent times, we just haven't had many sales. It seems like that's probably the product of leasing becoming more, uh, sorry, not leasing, um, loans becoming difficult to achieve for especially office property or increased rates that can then drive up cap rates. Um, so I'd say it's kind of hard to develop a cap rate from say a large data set. So I thought the feedback from Mr. Thill was quite useful. Um, his feedback I wrote in there, he said the range was, um, let me point to the page, on page four, uh, his, his feedback was that it could be possibly sub seven up to 8%, but 7%, low 7% was more likely. Um, that's, I guess, considering all factors. And I also did reach out to Select Commercial Funding LLC here in Las Vegas. The final few pages I provided are just there, or is just an online calculator to do a band of investment calculation. I thought I'd just try it to see what the impact of, of um, financing might have. And I came up with cap rates as, uh, uh, as I provided as 7.02 up to 7.58 just based on some of the market information provided and I guess you could say market expectations. So I don't think that's like a number to hang our hat on, but it just was kind of a test and additional information you could consider. And it seemed to fall within what um, the feedback was that I got on cap rates. Uh, so the potential market income there, I also provided a load for the cap rate because I was removing real estate taxes as an expense and then just providing the percentage of property value that the taxes would represent as a load to the cap rate. As um, I know there's various approaches to value property for consideration of uh, property assessments. I know this is one of the approaches that can be used. Um, that's the particular approach that I present these numbers under. Finally, there were some lease up costs, tenant improvement allowances, and commissions that would have to be considered given that this is an incomplete status. So instead of just taking um, the way I presented this data is instead of just taking the value and then hit it with say, let's guess the you know 85% complete and hit it with a percentage. Instead, I just put the, um, used a benchmark of $75 per foot in TI allowances to finish the fourth and first floors. And then also included an estimate of what the commissions would be to lease that out under the theory that when we're looking at our valuation time frame, if the fourth and first floors were not complete, this is what a potential owner would have to look at is I'm gonna buy the building, but I need to spend this money to get it up to you know, market occupancy. So that was considered as well as a bottom line deduction. Um, very briefly, and then I will conclude, I'll touch on page number five, the actual income. It was a very similar approach, but I just plugged in the income that was provided by our property manager. And um, 
of course, considered it on an annual basis using the price per foot that they got under the leases. Um, I pretty much averaged out and weighted the leases to get to 39.51 a foot as an overall rate. Um, I used the actual expenses as annualized in an estimate because we don't have a real operation history of more than a year so far. Um, so the property manager did have to estimate that for me. Um, and then the lease up costs that I put in consider the actual free rent that was left to pay. Um, the property manager did indicate under the free rent schedules that it will be payable over the next couple of years. So if an investor came in to take the property, even with the first and fourth floor leased out, they would have to consider, okay, I'm having to pay all this free rent. I summarized the free rent on page two as one of the columns of the spreadsheet, and I apologize, it's, it's so small to fit onto the page, but it's, um, if you flip the page sideways, the f there's a free rent column towards the center, and I just totaled up how much free rent each of those tenants had under their agreements. So you could consider, okay, that's how much an investor would have to look at. I need to pay this out over the years. They wouldn't, I don't think an investor would reduce the, the rate of income on their pro forma. I think they'd probably just take that as a bottom line deduction, considering perhaps they'd consider that a capital cost for, for the initial lease up. Um, given that, I think there's a lot of uh, ways you can adjust the numbers a little bit here and there, um, but the numbers I came up with, you know, just running calculations, this is not exactly back of the napkin, it was a little bit more than that, but um, for potential market income came up at about 29 point, almost three, 29.3 million, considering partial, stat partial complete status. For actual income, came up with about 30.4 million. Um, the sales, again, I, there's not really good sales, I think, to directly compare, but at least it can kind of bookend the data we have and show, I think it can just help show, you know, test to see if it's, if the numbers are out of line or not. And I think that that's why we think that the, the um, Taxable value at a little over 34 million, I think it's probably higher than where it should be. We think it probably should be somewhere around the $30 million area. Um, unless you had any other, any questions, I'd be happy to answer, but otherwise uh, I conclude what we had to present. We, we may have questions, but we need to let the assessor put on their case. Very Mr. Good. Brown? Okay, so, <clears throat> Our, what we came up with was pretty similar to what he did as far as the CAV summary, but uh, I'll go through my CAV summary. Um, it's located on page 1220. So the, <clears throat> the rental rate that I used was $3.60 modified gross, um, which came to a potential gross income of 4422254 That rate was based on nearby comparables, the same properties he spoke about, uh, interviews with the brokers, and um, the subject's actual rent roll that was provided by the appellant. I used a market vacancy of 11%, 30% expenses, and, um, and a 7% 7, 7 cap rate to come to a stabilized value of 40538064 
And um, so based on my conversation with the leasing broker, he said the, the owner was offering $75 per foot for TIs. So I applied that $75 to the first and fourth floor of 48,480 square feet and came to a, a cost to complete of 3,636,000 for an overall current value at 36,902,064 which supports our taxable value of 34,443,053 um, as far as so the to go to the the rent roll so he provided on page two so the like he said so the agilisus and collier's leases were you know admittedly by the broker below market um agilisus was he said that lease was um important to secure the financing for the to construct a building and then Collier's, uh, they're getting free rent um, and a lower lease rate based on a reduction in their, their lease commissions. And so if you look at the, the two leases on the first floor, both of those are at $3.60 um, a foot. The fourth floor, Frazier and Dieter, is at $4.05, and U.S. Bank is at $3.70. And when I spoke with the, um, the leasing broker, he said that $3.60 would be the minimum that he would use when trying to determine a market value. So I try to give the benefit of, of the doubt. The most recent lease is $4.05. Uh, when I spoke with the leasing brokers for the other uh, comparable buildings, um, Uncommon said he was leasing at 405 and he was, you know, planning on increasing that to 425. And then the leasing broker for Axiom said that he uh, thought that, it, you know, similar to what the appellant said, was was a lesser product. But his his most recent leases were three 360. So I figured 360 was at the at the minimum of what we should use. Um, the like I said, the vacancy that was, you know. The same vacancy that they use, I, you know, I looked at the same Collier's report. That was at the high end. The subject, I believe, is roughly 8% not leased. So that, you know, the first, the first floor is completely leased. It's just not complete. And the fourth floor, I believe there's still roughly 8,000 square feet to lease. So it's roughly 8% not leased. So um, it's already leased up to, you know, to market. Uh, the 3% income, same as the appellant, 30% expenses. Like I said, that's typical for the market from what I've found, um, the cap rate. So the cap rate, when I spoke with um, with the leasing broker, he indicated to me that six and a half to seven would, would be a good cap rate for this. And he said six and a half would probably be what he used just based on the, the good credit of the tenants. And then at the, you know, based on information that I've seen in, at the appraisal symposium, the same brokers, and they all said for Class A office in the Southwest, seven to eight was was a good cap rate, I guess, to use for, for that type of property. Um, so I, I went with seven, so I felt that that, was, that would represent. 
<clears throat> that was good for that for that property. And like I said, the cost to complete at seventy five dollars, we deducted the three million six thirty six to derive the thirty six nine oh two sixty four, which supports our value. Mr. Prowalski. Thank you, Daryl Prowalski for the assessor's office. I just wanted to make a, a couple of comments that um, we don't necessarily agree with the large um, lease-up commissions because this property already is at over, as Nick stated, less than market uh, vacancy and collection that we have. The imputed cap rate on there indicated 8.24%, uh, so almost eight and a quarter percent is what our taxable value is against the NOI that have been testified um, that they're pretty close the appellant and our office. So it seems like there's a very minor differences in here that's centered around the cap rate and estimated expenses for the property because of its new construction. Members of the board? I have a couple of questions. One is um, the square footage difference. The assessor is using 2,367 square feet more than their rent roll shows. Um, they're the appellant's showing 100185 the assessor showing 102000 So you take that difference, and then all, the other difference that I, I don't think you can do TIs for 75 bucks a foot based on the symposium I was at a week ago, I think it's double that. You're probably looking at 150 a foot for TIs, especially this kind of building. So those two adjustments, it brings the value down to 32356 Just adjusting the square footage, and adjustment TIs. So that's just something I think we need to consider. I, I would also add this. I was just at a presentation at Uncommons where the developer landlord um, talked about their project and their expenses are now about 18 to $19 a square foot. Um, and I think that we're all sort of at a loss here because this is a relatively new phenomenon. <laughs> Um, insurance rates have gone up astronomically. Uh, operating expenses are very high. So the $12 a square foot may or may not be realistic. Um, my other question would be, um, I understand that there are two tenants that are almost in, what, 50%, a little over 50% of the building at below market rents. So if we're gonna go ahead and you know capitalize a market rent are you taking account for rent loss? They're, they're leases that are 10 years. And from what I'm calculating, uh, the rent loss is, <clears throat> excuse me, almost 780,000. So, I mean, I'm wondering if that gets considered as well. Mr. Brown, you'd used uh, 48,480 uh, square footage in, in estimating cost to complete. Is that based on footprint or is that usable area? That's usable. That's usable. That was from the um, the brochure. What was what was? Uh, let me see. I can find those. Because the common areas were already, have already been completed on this property. So that was that number was based on on twelve fifty nine the uh, leasing brochure. Okay. 
So it's the first and fourth floor suites available, 3987-4454. Okay, so that's rentable. That's rentable. Which would, would be net rentable, which would include common area. Okay. That's my point. So I, I think the cost of completes were, were overstated. As far as the comments I had about the appellant's case, um, first question with your market potential, was that applying your $43 a foot to the total net rentable area? Yes, that's correct. Okay, so that's, that's, uh, that would be marking it to market, right? Yes, correct. Um, why then did you use the same cap rate when you used actuals? when you have a reduced risk to those cash flows and you still use the inflated cap rate? Why, why did you do that? Um, I did that more for just consistency in the cap rate. Um, right, but, you, guess, but yeah. you're, not, you're not treating, you're treating the cash flows as identical when you have a lower risk to those cash flows utilizing contract rents mm -hmm. that were signed prior to the increase of cost. That, that, uh, there's so much misconception about cap rates, right? The, the, the best way I, I use to explain it is a measurement of risk to the cash flows, mm -hmm. okay? And if you're basing it on the lower contract rents, you have a reduced risk to those cash flows. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, but utilizing the same cap rate is, is inconsistent methodology. Yeah, I understand that. Um, I suppose I was just trying to apply this, you know, be consistent, but I also understand your point. I think that's something when I did the revision, I didn't really maybe carefully consider as much. Now, 7.25, I, I guess my opinion too is that um, for a while I was doing these numbers for the market under 7.5, uh, given the, the market risk. Well, and, and I'm, I'm kind of curious when, why you used a 725 plus a load factor when the listing broker said 7% is reasonable. I, I, I mean, that's right in your notes. That's right in your, your publication. Yeah, what? I said um, his feedback was low sevens. Correct. Yeah. And seven likely, right. Low sevens likely. At least when I discussed with him. I know he also discussed with Mr. Brown as well. Um, so I guess to answer that particular number, I don't think that we considered that. Did you ask? I, I think perhaps maybe a little oversight on my part when looking at the actuals or market. So I just kind of did a, a little bit of a quick calculation so maybe the board can follow me on this. So if we take the 100,185 square feet and we multiply that by 4320 say the 360 a square foot um, that's four million three twenty seven nine ninety two if we add the one hundred thousand one eighty five in additional income and um, take off the eleven percent um, vacancy and collection loss factor let me do that really quick hang on seven nine nine two Take off 11%. We get to 3,941,077. I went ahead and just looked at, say, 
$15 a square foot. If uncommons is 18, 19, let's take off 15. That's 1502, 775. I get to 2,438,303. If I cap that at 7.25, I'm at 33,631,759. Um, I think it's appropriate to take off the rent loss. So if I take off the 778,801, and the 3,756,937 in remaining TIs, I get to about 29,096. And that's at a 7.25 cap. And that's without taking out the leasing commissions. I, I, I agree with you, the fact that it's leased, it's likely that those have already maybe been accounted for. So if we're just gonna take out those costs. which is obviously vastly different than what you have, but I think we've got a couple factors here. We have um, incorrect building sizes or difference in building sizes. Um, I think that we're a little light on expenses, um, and I think that we're not accounting for rent loss. We have two tenants there at below market. So if we're gonna go ahead and put it at market, we can do that, and I, I like that approach because it takes out the problem that Mr. Farr mentioned about trying to figure out what a cap rate is when you're a little below market. So if you just go ahead and put it at market, capitalize that, and then go ahead and take the rent loss off, it allows you to get a little clearer. Is there something there maybe that needs to be added or reconsidered? Am I, what do you think, too heavy on expenses? I mean, it's all academic at this point because we don't have historicals. Right, I, I, don't, I don't like going below his number. It, you know, you're at 29 and he's at 30. Understood. So I would think we'd at least be at his number. Correct, I'm just saying it, it does show that we've got some difference. Oh. I think also too, he's, they've also got some rents that are higher than, than the 43, right? They've got a couple at 48. So I mean, if we're looking at your actuals, you know. Yep. Mr. Brown. So the, so on page four of what the appellant provided there's he has expense comps and those you know from 23 to 35 percent um closer to 25 percent i would say for you know the average of the expense comps that he provided the uh the just exactly what you said the the rental rate at 360 was the low the low end so they, they have you know their most recently signed lease is at $4.05, so if we're looking at market, I would assume that that would be indicative of what the market is, but you know, even US Bank was at 370, so I, like I said, maybe it's the wrong approach. I was uh, When I was looking at it, I was given the benefit of the doubt, you know, for rental rate, for, you know, cap rate based on what the brokers were telling me. The, uh, even vacancy, they're below market vacancy now. You know, I'm, I was basing that on a one call year's report. CBRE had a report at 8%, which, you know, so this number that I have represents, you know, it's, it's not perfect, but it represents given the benefit of doubt on almost every aspect of this. So that's all I'm gonna say. Do one of you wanna go ahead and do through an actual calculation? <laughs> um, 
And, and I, w I, I just want to say this, though, I, and I, I saw what he did, and I can appreciate that he's trying to take the taxes out of it, because that's what we're talking about. Um, and then he went ahead and loaded it, and by loading it, it, it kind of comes out the same. So, I mean, the, the $12 a square foot without taxes and then loading the cap rate, I think, is just as problematic as trying to do a, a below-market cap rate on below-market rent. So, um, I, I can appreciate what he was doing, but I think that 30% is probably a little light if you're not including taxes. And so, he, he made up for it by loading the cap rate, but... I would prefer that, you know, we do something that captures all the expenses. Have you guys got a budget? I mean, what are you seeing your actual insurance and janitorial and all that at? Um, I wasn't made privy to a budget. I don't know if they, I would assume as of right now they've probably completed one, um, but I wasn't able to, to look at one. And, and I'll tell you, I really appreciate the difficulty you have doing this because we're all in the same boat now. I literally just looked at something where someone told me their insurance on a single-tenant industrial building was $1.70 a square foot, which is insane. Now, we all know that they've gone up, so where we used to say, oh, 35, 40, 45, add 30% to that, we're now looking at insurance alone probably in the 60 to 70 cents a square foot range. Are you guys seeing that as well or hearing that, Terry? Tio? Um, I'm sorry, I was reading. Yeah, I, it's, <laughs> I think we're all a little behind the eight ball. I think we're going to be really shocked as we start looking at true operating um, data. Here's kind of my heartburn with, I mean, the, the best comp, the most recent comp is the one on Charleston at a seven and a quarter, and it's a 20-year-old building. This thing's brand new with all credit tenants. I, I think that that... Respectfully, I think your seven and quarters light, considering the credit tenancy on this one. Um, I, 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 I don't know. I just it's a brand new building with credit tenants, and there's no there's no support otherwise in the market for an eight and a quarter cap rate. This I'm just flushing this out, right? If you recalculate that at a seven cap, let me see. And again, I, if we're going to do that, then let's do actuals. So maybe take, well, yeah. Right. I agree. A actuals is how it should be measured. Right. If, if you're marking it to market, now you're going to discount, okay, what discount rate do you do the excess rents or the, the, uh, the uh, uh, shortage on rents? Base rents are 35971104 based on the information provided. And really, I, at this point, do we even make a deduction for cost to complete since it's 9% it's vacant and we're using an 11% market vacancy? Theoretically, it's stabilized. So you wouldn't make a deduction. Right, but I mean, I'm assuming the assessor does take into account it's not complete, correct? Right, so the right. building is on at 85%, so that's, you know, so if... So it's, yeah. we're only talking about 4% then of those costs to account for that. Because if, if you take in anything more, now you're above stabilized. Right. Okay. Just, I just did the math on that 1% load. Mm -hmm. That added $48 a square foot in expenses. That's equivalent to by him loading the 1% mm -hmm. onto the cap rate. The $48 plus he's already done 
uh, what is he at 11 or $12? $12. So he's at $60 on his expenses. Yeah, I don't like the approach of loading the cap rate. I would just rather like well, look I'm, at it. I'm just saying that's, how, that's the effect on here. And that's way too high, 60 bucks a foot yeah. for expenses. Yeah. So that, that's a problem with your analysis. The only adjustments I think need to be made are the square footage and the cost of the TIs and move on, in my opinion. That's, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna make a motion for that. And I made those adjustments. I adjusted it to 100,185 square feet. And I uh, used a seven and a half cap. And I adjusted for the uh, TI cost being 150, not 75. And I came out to $32,356,000. So that's a motion so we can see where we go. Motion's been made. Please cast your votes. So, I don't mean to beleaguer this, but can you walk me through? You did 185 at what market? Or what their actuals? You looked at their actuals? No, I did market. You did market, okay. I did market. I did 15% for vacancy and plus from that. Okay. I did the 30% on expenses, and I did a seven and a half cap. Okay, and, and you- I adjusted for TIs, and I used 100,185 square feet. And what, what was the stabilized without before the deductions? On your rent roll on page two yes. for annual base rents, that's actual income being received today, correct? Because I don't see any vacant spaces listed in the rent roll. Um, yeah, I didn't list the vacant space. Um, there's still 9,152 rentable building area vacant on the fourth floor, I believe it is. But the rent roll that I provide there, that's their contract rents in place. So what they have in place right now is 35971904. Um, yes. If that's the case, I would take that number, not apply a vacancy, since we're assuming that it's stabilized, mm -hmm. okay? Take 30% of that, apply a seven cap to it. Uh, I'd like to withdraw my motion because I just redid the math and I'm off on one number. So I'd like to withdraw that.
methodology I just used, taking actual income as reported by the appellant, um, taking 30% off for expenses gives me 2517983 at a 7 cap I'm at 3571190 call it 36 mm -hmm. that's what I got as well you take off the TIs why would I I wouldn't take off TIs if I'm already assuming stabilization but um, the TIs if that's the case then I'm going to uh, I'm going to I'm going to roll I'm going to add the vacant space to my income this is just taking their actual income. No, I understand, but it's it's the as if stabilized, as is, as if stabilized, and that's fine, but there are still TIs not finished, and you do count for that, right? So the first floor, the majority of it's gonna be finished in the next two weeks. Um, the There's one suite that'll be finished in the middle of April. There's a suite, of, uh, the Dieter, and, or Fraser and Dieter is gonna be finished in April. So the majority of the, the work is done. I just applied the TIs because that was what the owner's expense was for that portion. They said that they would pay up to $75 and the rest was gonna go on the tenants. So yeah, so that, that is overinflated also. Like I said, everything in there is the benefit of the doubt to the, to the appellant. So, but the majority of it is complete. And if 75 is what the building owners are offering, that's Anything else is over and above the right. responsibility of the tenant, which is factored into the rental rate. Exactly. But they are or are not complete. They're, They're the majority complete. of it will be complete in in the middle, like in the next two weeks, and then one suite. Like I said, I, I spoke with the contractors uh, last week, and they said first floor will will be complete in April, and the fourth floor, the um, Fraser and Dieter, so that would be six thousand square feet of that will be completed in April. So they haven't started the US Bank and then the uh, 8,000 and change suite hasn't started as well, the, the spec suite that they. This is uh, Daryl Pawalski for the Clark County Assessor's Office. I just wanted to um, uh, just let the board know, remind that this is for the 24-25 fiscal year. So our lien date is July 1st. Um, currently we do have this record on it, 85% which was an inspection that was done last July of 2023. So we will be going out to the property to make the uh, determination. Today we're here just testing to see if our taxable value is exceeding the full cash value. Uh, state statute 227 does require us to look at expectancy market rents for the property um, and expectant uh, fair economic rental, which is what we've done in our analysis to test whether or not we're exceeding full cash value for our data value on uh, January 1st. Okay, so you you understand that for the purpose of this, your property is essentially stabilized. It's complete, it's stabilized, it's leased. For the purpose of this calculation that we're talking about? For the purpose of, of what they're assessing. It's, it's you're, if you've only got, if you're, if you're economically, I mean, leased up and you're just waiting for a, a little bit of tenant improvements that will be done by then, then we've got a stabilized property, so all those deductions don't come into play. In, in, in that sense, I, I kind of like the way you did it with just the actuals, um, because we've, we've taken out the whole vacancy factor, and we've looked at um, your operating expense ratio and a seven cap, because um, you do have you know, some below market rents there, significant below market rents. Um, so it, it actually seems that that's good, and I don't, I don't even know the deductions are appropriate then. 
if we're talking about a stabilized property. As of the valuation date, July 1st, though, we are considering it partially complete. I think that's why both myself and the county are making the deductions. We I'm have the leases in place. I believe they were executed in, or starting in, executed starting March of last year for the fourth floor spaces and the first floor, but none of the construction has started yet. So that was pretty much shell space. Um, also note, there's all the free rent that was there on the property. If we just took, capitalized the contract rents um, under Mr. Farr's approach, um, I don't think that would consider the free rent that was in place as well that's left to pay out over the next few years. A little bit has been paid out in the last year, but I think the majority would be still left to pay out. I mean, without doing a cash flow on that, I, I'm not sure how significant that is. I'm, I'm more concerned at this point of whether we're looking at a stabilized property or not. And what you're saying is that it's leased. There are some TIs that are not yet done, but as of this, this tax year is the 24-25, so it'll be July. So as of July, will those TIs be complete or substantially complete? Oh, you mean July of this year? This year. Yes, they should be complete by July of this year. And, so they're and, gone. So, and I'm understanding, correct me, that, that's what they're looking at because this is for the 24-25 tax year. So by then, you will be stabilized. Um, yes, there'll be some free rent, but you know, that's, that's part of a cash flow and I and don't know how, without that exact number, I don't know how significant that's gonna be. Uh, you mean the free rents? Yeah. I put in the total of free rents on page number two, down towards the bottom, it says total free rent 2.443 million, so 2,443,151. And that's over what period? Um, it's over roughly a two year period, beginning last, beginning middle of last year for Colliers and Angelisis. The other fourth and first floor, I believe we're beginning this year. How, how much of that has burned off? Um, what's, what, my, my question is, what's the remaining unearned free rent? At, the, at this point, I know at this point it was over $2 million. I, I apologize, I don't have the exact number for right now. Are concessions common in the office market? Yes. yes. So then the market has free it's rent. It's built into the cap. Yeah. yeah, so I, I just, I, I think that's mute in this case, especially it's six more months, it's going to be, more of it burns right. off. And the assessors value, what, remind me again, where are we? 36,902. But your, oh, your was concluded was 34? So taxable value is 34 million, 443, Okay, I'm gonna go back and try this again. I'm gonna use the 4320, the 100,185 square feet, 15% expenses, I mean 15% vacancy, 35% expenses, and a 7% cap rate. I'm at $34,160,222. Pretty close to the assessor. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think you guys did a great job. This was really hard. And, and you also did, this is pretty close to an appraisal. <laughs> yeah, really great information. Yep. But it seems we're really close, and I think maybe the misunderstanding might be in 
whether, you know, what date we're looking at. So we're looking at July. Right, I didn't realize that. Not now. So. July of this year? This year. Yeah, so there's a motion. We'll see if that works. Real quick, I'm sorry, I don't want to, I just want to insert. I want to make sure that the board is clear that we're looking at, our valuation date is January 1st for this board hearing. What, I just want to make sure we're clear on what we're saying. We can still look at it as stable, but by the time we get to July, we're, the, even though right now we have it as 85% complete, we will make it 100% complete because they are going to be 100% complete. So I just don't want to confuse the two dates because we are looking at it as, okay, if it was stable today, what would that look like? But we are going to add those additional improvements by the time we get to the July hearing. And so I, just so, because that could be, I don't want that to be confusing for the board. So I just want to restate that. Yeah, if I could provide just a comment on that. That did inform my analysis as well. Last year, we did get a supplemental assessment for this building, um, summer of last year, to account for the part, portion that had been completed. Um, so this is looking at, you know, I believe would be January 1st valuation date. Um, and like she said, I do believe they will come back and then assess it as fully complete later this year. And Chairman Farr, the reason why I'm saying that is because um, Mr. Brown, Nick Brown over here, he recognized that when he put that cost to complete in there. So he's recognizing that in his analysis to make sure that we can still add that in the supplemental. And so if we make a decision now that we're going to say all in, all inclusive, that means we cannot add it new during supplemental period. I, so I just want to make sure we're clear in the decision that okay. we're making. Thank you. Um, I'm not gonna, I, I would not take a full 75 bucks a foot. I would ask you, what are the remaining costs that have not been paid? Because during the course of your TIs, they don't pay it all at the very end, mm -hmm. right? So my, my question on that point, if they're gonna be done in a matter of weeks, how much of that 75 bucks a foot that's allocated has already been spent? Right, are, are we talking 60, are we talking 50, 70, I have no idea. Yeah, that I'm not so, really uh, sure. I mean, if, if I go back and use, you're talking a couple weeks from completion? Well, then, now we go back to January 1st, so a month ago, what, what are we talking, half? 60% complete for TIs? The, I mean, the majority of it is, is done in the, in the initial with the HVAC and the plumbing, right? Actually, HVAC because it's got common area, uh, common area plumbing on that property. Yeah, the but electrical and and build out. The right? broker, the broker, and the property manager seem to have the opinion it was around. I guess you say around fifty percent. If we're looking back a month, as so the far TIs were fifty percent completed. From their feedback, yeah. As far as total, you know, square footage on fourth and first floor that had been leased out. Not all, not all of the spaces are at the same status, but that was their guesses overall. Right, but, but the, my question is how much, to bring it to stabilization, what's the remaining cost to complete? Forget about the other vacant spaces that haven't been leased because that's, not, that's right. outside the calculation. Right. Is, is it 25 bucks a foot? Is it 15 bucks a foot that's left? I mean, the majority of that is in the initial part of, of the rest of its trim and finish and carpet and paint. Right. If what do you guys use, think? Yeah, if we use that assumption, I my guess would be no more than fifty percent. 
would be less than that. That's my guess. And Mr. Brown, when you when you did yours, that was taking the the entire building, correct? Not just to stabilization. The, that 48, 460. That's the fourth and first floor, and that's the 100% combined. Of the, yeah, that's the square footage of the two of those. The rentable square footage of the first and fourth floor total. Okay. It's kind of a range, right? I mean, how how much most of the heavy lifting is done at the initial onset of tenant improvements. You've got your plumbing, you've got your overhead, you've got your sprinklers, you've got, you know, the, the framing, the electrical. You know, the 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 last portion of that is finish, paint, drywall, carpeting. You know, install ceiling tiles. Um, I, I think taking seventy-five bucks to all of it is excessive in terms of deduction. But I understand what you. I'm not saying you did it wrong. I understand what you were doing. So if you do your calculation again with actuals. So if I look at, we're talking. Fourth floor is 12,366. First floor. And we're missing some of that. I guess my question is how much of that would, would bring the property to stabilization? If I use your 100, 185, 0.89. brings me to. 89,164, call it 89,165 for stabilized square feet, right, at least. If I take off 14,813, 36,181, 17,966, oh no, leave that on because that's first floor. Okay, so now I've got. Thirty-eight one seventy-one that has not been built out, or that has not been accounted for. Approximately half of that's required for stabilization. Sound right? So even if I call it 20,000 feet at 20 a foot, I mean, that's 400,000 for remaining cost to complete at that point. I, I mean, there's a lot of assumptions being thrown here. <laughs> we don't really have much of a choice, right? That still brings me, even if I use that number, I'm still at 35.6 in terms of a value. And that's using my aforementioned uh, income in place, 
uh, 30% deduction for expenses at a seven cap. Comments, feedback. Well, we're, we're kind of doing this on the fly too, so it's there's forty-eight thousand four hundred sixty square feet vacant. I'm confused. What's actually vacant here, or no, what what TIs are under? What space is undergoing TIs? First and fourth. First and fourth. First and, fourth. and the sizes of those together. I've got 60, so according to the rent roll on page two, sorry, according to the rent roll on page two, I've got 6052, 12366, uh, 17966, and 3655 for net runnable. So yeah, there's 40,039 square feet. Did I do my math right? 40,039. Okay. I was at 38,171 because I missed okay. one. And that is currently space that is leased with TIs under construction, is that correct? That's correct. And we're estimating that approximately how much of those TIs have been completed? My estimate would be um, at least 50%. Okay, so if we take the 40, 39, multiply it by the 75, divide that by two, that's about 1.5 million in TI remaining. Okay, so if we take 35, 35,971, and then take the 1.5 off, we're right around the 34,471. We're right around where the assessor has it. So to be clear then, what you're saying is you'll come back in July and then do the supplement. Yes, supplemental okay. value will be added. That's why I wanted to make sure we understood okay. the no, date because thank you. if you make a di different decision, then we can't add supplemental value. But the supplemental value that's added is appealable next year at this time. So they can bring it back and appeal not just the current year, but also the back year. Understood. Okay. Based on everything we've discussed, I make a motion to accept the assessor's assessed value. As it does not exceed full cash value. As it does not exceed full cash value. Thank Motion's you. been made. Please cast your votes. And that motion passes. Sir, you do have the right to appeal. Forms are outside the door. Okay. Thank you I for want to see what Thank the actuals are next year. I can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> the actual expenses. Chairman Farr. Yes. Uh, Daryl Prowalski for the Clark County Assessor's Office. I'm not, I'm not sure if anybody um, else had a peer. We did have one more issue that we wanted to just add into the clerk's record for um, the circle case cases and I can, uh, convenience store cases. I can read those into the record. It's basically just a summary of all the 25 appeals that were sent in, um, just how they were looked at in one piece of paper. Um, we suspect they'll probably appeal to the state and just for ease of direction for the state, we just wanted to put that on the record that we wanted to submit one additional page sure. to those cases. 
and those cases are 664, 667, 669, 665, 668, 670, 671, 672, 676, 681, 685, 686, 666, 675, 678, 687, 688, 677, 673, 674, 682, 683, 684, 680, and 689. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, what do we have next? Uh, Chairman Farr, you can call and see if there's any more petitioners, and if not, um, then we can vote on all the remaining cases that are on the agenda, um, including those that are stipulated and withdrawn. Do we have any additional petitioners that would like to speak? Seeing none. No? Okay, we have any remaining cases that have been stipulated to or withdrawn? All the remaining cases, including the stipulated and withdrawn, you need to vote on all of those. Okay, motion to accept the assessor's recommendations on any cases where the petitioners did not attend this hearing and those that have been stamped stipulated or withdrawn, please cast your votes. Motion passes. Okay, microphone is open for any public comment. Seeing none, I will close the microphone. Is there any other business, Ms. Widener? I'm just going to say it one more time that the hearing for this Thursday is going to be at 1 o'clock p.m. Um, instead of 8 because that's our normal time would be 8, but it's a different situation this year. So um, for anyone that may be listening online that the hearing will be held at 1 p.m. this coming Thursday, February 8th. Thank you. Great. Thank you for your time. We're adjourned. <laughs>